Hey, this is Joe Caminetti Jr. Welcome to the BC Podcast. We hope it inspires you and helps you in your journey with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, what's up, Boardman? How you guys doing this morning? Yeah. Well, I am so excited to be with you here today, and uh, we're starting a new series that'll be unfolding over the next several weeks called Getting Past Your Past. And uh, I was just thinking about my life, and I think about um, all my days before I knew Jesus, and I think of, like, just, I was such a knucklehead, man. I was such an idiot. And I got to be honest with you, my mom is 84, and there are things that I've never told my mom that I've done yet, because... Well, two reasons. One is I don't want her to go to the grave feeling really bad about the son she raised. The second one is I don't want her to like jump out of a chair and just start beating on me for all these dumb things I did. And I'd love to say that I, I didn't do anything dumb after I came to, to faith in Jesus, but that wouldn't be true. And uh, when I came to faith, um, many of you know that I grew up in Southern California and uh, Nancy Reagan did not uh, come out with the drug message, just say no yet. So I hadn't heard that. And apparently I thought everything was a yes. And so from the age of nine, I took my first hit of a joint at nine years old. And by the time I was in seventh grade, I was a regular user of anything you could get in my hands. And that was my life um, until I hit 19 when I gave my life to Jesus. And uh, when I was 18 years old, my parents um, had raised me in the church. Uh, they took us to church three times a week minimum and sometimes more. My dad was the worship leader and on the board and in leadership there. My mom was uh, led worship for the, the children and was a Sunday school teacher. We were there all the time. And I always like to say that's when my drug problem started because my parents drugged me to church and I hated every minute of it, man. I just hated it. Um, but my parents began to realize that they'd just been, you know, praying more out of fear than faith. And the prayer of faith is really powerful. So my mom and dad began to pray in faith for God to reach their kids who were very far from him, and we were. And when I was 18 years old, I was sitting in the back of a pickup truck at a drive-in theater, drinking beer and smoking dope, and I heard a voice. And I'd never heard a voice before like that. It wasn't a psychotic break. I just heard a voice that said, you thought you had to be perfect before you came to me, but if you come to me, then you'll change. See, I had this whole gospel thing backwards. I thought this way, I'm not good enough to go to church. Like, if I could ever get my act together, then maybe I'll go to church. That's backwards. You'll never be good enough on your own. You're never going to be good enough. You need a Savior. I need a Savior. And so I got into this wrestling match with God. That lasted a whole year. I'd like to say I got better. I got worse. And finally, I just thought, God, I'm wrestling with you, and I can't win this fight. Like, I give up. And so I walked into a little church that my two brothers went to in Arlita, California. The guy who was preaching there was uh, an ex-gangbanger from East L.A. He was an immigrant from Nicaragua. His name was Omar Enriquez. He's now in heaven. And, uh, you know, he'd been a heroin addict, and uh, God had done amazing things in his life. And I remember that day he preached, and at the end of that time, I went up, and like many of you have done on a Sunday, you know, I said yes to following Jesus. And I didn't really feel any change. I actually didn't feel any change at all. I just knew I made a decision, and it is a decision. And then three days later, I was sitting with my older brother in my parents' jacuzzi, and he was getting ready to go off to Bible school, Bible college. 
And he said, hey, Graham, do you understand what you did when you gave your life to Jesus? And I said, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian now. And he really just began to unpack the good news of the gospel. And I can't tell you why this is, and maybe some of you have experienced this, but in that moment, this joy, as the Apostle Peter said, joy unspeakable, like I can't describe it, this joy took hold of me that night in that jacuzzi. And I mean, God turned my world upside down. And all these people that thought they knew me, I mean, I was bringing them in. I was packing like a whole pew. We had pews, not seats. I packed a whole pew with my friends, you know, all these party animals. They're all there. You know, I'm like, you got to hear this stuff. And, and it was God, God had brought me from death to life. And I had been radically changed. And I knew it. And I had so much joy. I can remember sitting in the lunchroom. I was a warehouseman at this nursery chain. And I had all these people that I played, you know, on the softball team with and partied with, and they knew me really well. And I'm sitting in there at the lunchroom and during my breaks reading my Bible. You know, I didn't know any better. I'm just reading my Bible and I'm just laughing. They're like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm just happy. I'm happy, man. And this was just like, I mean, my eyes had been open. I was living this new life. It was amazing. But something happened was I was going to church twice a week and hearing a lot of messages. And messages are encouraging but they're also challenging. Wouldn't you agree that sometimes messages correct us, rebuke us, instruct us, help us, but they can challenge us. And as I'm hearing this, I'm about three months into following Jesus, and I'm hearing all these messages, and I'm trying my hardest. That's one, I want to emphasize that I am trying my hardest to live out these truths, but I have not yet built those spiritual muscles yet. I can't turn the other cheek. I want to punch you out when you hit me on the cheek, right? I, I'm not ready for that yet. I haven't grown into that yet. And so about three months in, I had this major failure. But how many of you would agree that you've, you can learn from your failures? And I certainly did that night. And here's what I did. I went and I found my best friend, and I had brought him and his girlfriend to church, and they said yes to following Jesus. But that night I walked in, I said, George... I don't think I can go to church tonight. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be real. I don't want to be a phony. And I'm struggling to live this Christian faith out. Like, I'm really struggling, dude. It's, it's hard. Like, I feel like my whole prayer life, my whole prayer life has become, God, I'm sorry. I didn't know that was a sin two weeks ago. Now I do. Now I'm sorry about it. And he looked at me. He goes, dude, we just need to go get drunk. I'm like, dude, you're on it. We're going to go get drunk. So we did. A couple of light bulb moments while I was getting drunk. Getting drunk. And the only thing that's coming out of my mouth is Jesus. That's all I'm talking about. Scriptures, Jesus. All I can talk about is him. Because that's what my heart is full of. And then the next light bulb moment was this. I looked at my friend. I said, dude. That's how I talked back then. Dude. I said, I used to spend half my paycheck on a Friday night to get high with whatever I could get my hands on. I live to party most days of the week. I live for this stuff, man. And I said, as I'm feeling drunk and wasted, I go, this is so weak. This pales. What I'm feeling right now, this feeling in my body, inebriated, I said, this pales in comparison to what I feel like on a Friday night when I lift my hands at church and worship Jesus and that new wine of his presence comes and fills me. This is so inferior that that night I was never, ever again tempted to get high once more. 
ever because it was nothing. But you know what my problem was? I hadn't learned to get past my past. I hadn't learned to get past my guilt. And I didn't know that I had an enemy who would try to condemn me for the purpose of pushing me away from God. I didn't know that. And so all that guilt made me feel like I just wasn't good enough. Well, listen, it's never been about me. It's never been about you. We have a saying around here that most of you know. It's called, no perfect people allowed. Let me tell you something. The people that stand on this stage and the ones that sit out there, none of us are perfect. None of us. But we all have to deal with guilt. I raised three boys, and I can tell you this. Some kids can sin and not feel bad at all. And other kids are hypersensitive. It's like, I'm sorry, Dad, you know. And, you know, we're all different. Some of us deal more with this than others. But the bottom line is God wants to teach us how to get past our past. And so we're going to get into that over the next few weeks, how to get past our past. But uh, behind me here, you're going to see a picture of a lady. Her name is Jill Price. And Jill Price is a very unusual lady in this sense that she's been diagnosed with something that only 60 other people in the world have been diagnosed with. And she's been diagnosed with hypermythesia. And that's a condition where you have a superior autobiographical memory. Now, this kicked in for her at the age of 14. At the age of 14, she began to remember every event from every day of her life. No joke. Like every event from every day. She can tell you that on February 28th, 1983, that was the final episode of MASH. She can tell you that her windshield wipers didn't work that day. She can recount every fight with every friend and family member, every horrible thing she said to them, and everything they've said to her. She can remember all of it in great detail with all the intensity of the emotions that come along with those words. And she said, as I grew older and older, she said, I literally had so many memories flooding my brain. She said, I, she said, I became a prisoner to my own memories. That's sad. And you know what? My guess is that there's nobody in this room that has that condition. But I have met so many people that are a prisoner to maybe one memory or two or three memories, failures, things that should have been forgiven and forgotten a long time ago. They're tethered to that. They're stuck there. They can't seem to get free from that. And listen, God wants you to be free from that. That's what we're going to talk about today. Forgiveness frees us from our past. Forgiveness frees you from your past. So I want to take you to a, a scripture that I'm sure most of you probably know. When I was growing up, my parents would pray this with us every single night, and I sort of memorized it that way, I guess, just by rote. Um, it's a very powerful prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And um, with the Lord's Prayer, you know, you can pray it verbatim, and I do sometimes, but really Jesus taught us a lot about prayer. Like each phrase in the Lord's Prayer is actually a door that you can open to go into an aspect of prayer. And that's what Jesus intended for us to get out of that prayer. And as you go into those doors of prayer, it, it's part of the house of prayer. But one aspect of that prayer is simply Matthew 6, 12. And listen to what he says here. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our... Can we do that one more time? I just want to make sure you're with me here today. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our... Oh, awesome, awesome. I love the fact that Jesus used the word debt here. This is not the only time that Jesus used the word debt in relation to sin and its cancellation and forgiveness in our life. He used it in multiple parables. 
And it's a literal rendering of the Aramaic because that's the language that Jesus preached in. He preached in Aramaic. And I love that because it's easy for me to grasp and understand what it means to have my sins forgiven. It means to have my debt canceled. Because the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, or in other words, the paycheck you earn for sin is death. Your sin always creates a bill, if you will. Somebody's got to pay that bill. We can't pay that bill. We're not good enough to pay it. We need someone to pay it for us, and that's the Savior, Jesus. He pays that bill for us. Now, I don't know if you guys saw this, but how many know there's a lot of graduation ceremonies, and we hear about famous commencement speakers like Denzel Washington or whoever, but I don't know if you guys saw this or not on the news, but this guy that's up here behind me, his name is Robert Smith, and Robert Smith is a billionaire, and he was the commencement speaker at Morehouse College just this last spring. 396 students in the audience. And he stood up, and during his speech, he said these words, today, I want you to know I'm paying off all your student loans, every single one of you in this class. How would you feel if you walked into that graduation ceremony knowing I've got a $100,000 student debt loan that i got to figure out how to pay off, and in one moment, it's gone? That'd be a pretty good feeling, wouldn't it? Guys, that's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, it's not just that, but that's part of it, that our sins are canceled. They're forgiven because of what Jesus did for us. So here's what I know about sin is that every single person in this room deals with it. There are some of you that deal with it and you know that you deal with it, and there are some of you that deal with it and you're just not aware that you deal with it. Because here's what I found out. We can sometimes tell ourselves that we don't have issues because we're deceived. 1 John 1.8 says this, if we say that we don't have any sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So sometimes we're just not self-aware. And we also live in a culture where people want to help our self-esteem. We want people to feel <clears throat> like they're great and they can do a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes what that also equals is nothing is my fault. It's not my fault. It's my mama's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my brother's fault, my sister, my boss's fault. No, sometimes we've got to own it. Sometimes we're the problem. We're the common denominator. It's like that guy who was sitting with his attorney at the divorce court. It was his seventh divorce, and he looked at his attorney, and he said, you know what? I just came to realize that I might be the problem. You think? So sometimes people feel like, you know, they should just go to heaven because they're just basically good people. We've all heard that, right? But yet in Romans 3, Paul says there's not even one of us that's actually good enough to go to heaven because of our own goodness that our standard of goodness falls way short of God's, that if you were to take the Ten Commandments, God's moral law, and stack your life up against it and my life up against it, how many of you could say, I've never lied, not ever? Honey, do I look fat? I'm talking about somebody else's girlfriend or wife, not my own. Do I look? Nobody's ever lied, right? Have you ever dishonored your parents, right? You ever coveted, you know, a Lamborghini or something else, right? You're like, well, yeah, maybe a little bit of that, but, you know, uh, Grandma, I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered someone. I haven't done the really bad stuff. I know, but listen, we all fall short. This isn't about bringing you down. It's just about saying that sin is a reality in our lives. And sometimes we can kind of fool ourselves because we're saying, well, hey, you know, I'm doing all the right things. Uh, what, what, what's the sin in my life? Well, sometimes the sin isn't necessarily 
something wrong that you're doing. Sometimes it's what you're not doing. God maybe lays it on your heart to do something and you don't obey him. Have you ever heard Jesus say this? I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. I was homeless, you didn't help me. Those sins aren't sins of commission but omission. It's something we haven't done. So listen, we can all fool ourselves. I look at the rich young ruler. This was a guy who had his act together. He was successful. He had a lot of wealth. And yet when he came to Jesus and wanted to know how he could get into heaven, he said, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, Jesus, I've checked every box, and I've been keeping these commandments meticulously since I was very young. And the Bible says Jesus liked him. But do you know what? He didn't think he had any sin in his life, but you know what he did? Because the next phrase from Jesus' lips was this, I'm going to make you an invitation that I rarely make. I've made it to these 12 guys right here, but I'm going to make it to you. Take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And do you know what? He said, Jesus, no thank you. It says he went away very sad because he was extremely wealthy. What was his God? Money. Because Jesus said, you can't have two masters. See, I think in a culture like us, like ours, sometimes we think, well, I'm doing okay, pastor. I'm doing all right. Well, sometimes we don't realize is we've taken something good and made a God out of it without even knowing it. Guys, I can do, I'm going to be honest with you. I can do this with sports so easy. I don't know why, but I just can. I can do it with sports. Some of you have other issues. You know, it might be different than me, but I love what Tim Keller says about it. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. And whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. See, I think that we can deceive ourselves. I think that it's like me. I, my, my oldest son preached a message um, at his home church in Scottsdale a few weeks ago. And I'm not going to lie, I've listened to that message three times. And every time I listen to it over again, it convicts me. I didn't know that that was an area that I was starting to kind of get off track. But that truth, right, if you're deceived, the truth's not in you. Sometimes when we hear the truth, it begins to set us, what, back on course, back where we need to be. And so I think it's just so easy. And, and I think this is another thing that we won't go into in great depth. But when I think about the parable of the prodigal, which is perhaps one of the most famous stories Jesus ever told, people who are non-Christians know that story. Well, we look at the one son in that story. We always focus on the one son. Did you know it's actually a story about two sons? Jesus' audience was the Pharisees. They were the older brother in the story. It's a story about two sons, not one. One son is lost, and he knows he's lost. Guess what? The other one is lost, but he doesn't know it because he's kept all the rules. So we can deceive ourselves. I can. Now, what do we do if we have sinned, right? Because here's what I'm saying. I'm not encouraging you to sin, but you will sin. You'll blow it. What do we do? Well, let me just say this, and my wife's here, so I have to tread lightly, unlike I did in first service. But we're coming up on our 36th anniversary this Wednesday. And um, we've had a few fights. 
Now, I don't want to say how much of the blame belongs to her and to me, but I would say a lot of it belongs, you know, on that side right over there, right? And I've encouraged her, like, hey, honey, can't we just be more mature and talk this out? Honey, can't we just, like, talk rationally and not argue? You know, I do my best to coach her. And I don't know why she doesn't respond. I don't know why she thinks that's arrogant and prideful. I don't understand why she thinks that. But we've gotten into a few tiffs. And I can remember, um, you know, when we were younger, some of those tiffs would lead to one of us sleeping on the couch. Anybody ever been there? All right, a bunch of holy people here that have never been on a couch. Hallelujah. Guess <laughs> I'm in the wrong church. You've ne <laughs> never got in a fight with your wife. Okay. All right, I see how it is. Okay. But here's what I know. No matter whose fault it is, I know that I cannot just stay a knucklehead, that I have to actually, if I'm angry, not angry, whatever, there's a point that we're not on speaking terms. And if we want to get on speaking terms, we got to come and say, hey, I'm sorry, and mean it. Now, this is something I had to teach Lori not to do. She used to say, you're sorry for what? Like, she'd say, what are you sorry for? I said, no, we're not going to go there. You're just getting a sorry. That's all you get. You don't get an explanation of my sorry. Use that therapy on some other client. I'm not your client. You don't get an explanation. You just get a sorry. That's about as good as it gets in this marriage, all right? But here's the bottom line. When we do that, you know what we do? We make up. Now, was she my wife? Before we got in an argument, yeah. During the argument, yeah. Was she my wife after the argument? Yeah. She never stopped being my wife. Are you God's kid? Does he love you with an incredible love? Absolutely. Before, during, and after? Yeah, absolutely. What are we doing? We're making things right. We're getting back on speaking terms. How do we do that? It tells us right here in the Bible, 1 John 1, 9. It says these words, if we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just and true to his own nature and promises and will forgive our sins and cleanse us continually from all unrighteousness for our wrongdoing. Well, what is unrighteousness? Have you ever thought about what unrighteousness is? It is everything in my life and your life that is not in conformity with his will and his purpose. If you want to get past guilt and condemnation and that voice that says you're not good enough, it starts with just acknowledging and admitting and saying, God, I'm sorry. And here's what you have to believe. In that moment, not 10 minutes later, not two hours later, not because you read your Bible, not because you prayed, not because you did something good for someone else, not because you fasted or whatever to make yourself feel better. No, in that moment, you can add nothing to God's forgiveness. It is freely given. In that moment, you need to believe that God is faithful to his word. That when you say, God, I'm sorry, he said, it's done. Now let's move on, Graham. Come on. Because a lot of us, we get stuck in the past. And if you get stuck under a cloud of guilt and condemnation, you can't dream big dreams for God. You can't do big things for God when you're tethered to a bunch of guilt and remorse. You've got to get past that stuff. And the blood of Jesus is what gets us past it. Colossians 2.14 says it this way, he destroyed the record of the debt we owed with its requirements that worked against us. He canceled it by nailing it to the cross. That means that Jesus took the narrative of your sin. He took the narrative of your sin 
and he nailed it to the cross. He destroyed it. He destroyed the record of it. He canceled your debt completely. You are forgiven. But you know what I found out we do sometimes? It's human nature, and some of it's depending on your personality. If you're a little more sensitive than others, we walk right up to that cross, and we start looking at our sins, and we start reading the account of what we've done, and we start feeling that guilt and that remorse all over again when we need to just leave it at the cross and move on. That's faith. Just move on. I'm forgiven. I'm moving past my guilt. I'm moving into today. I'm moving into tomorrow. I'm not tethered to the past. I'm not a prisoner to that memory. And some of us, let's be honest, I've done it. We've, we've blown it in the same area over and over and over again. And we say, well, pastor, I'm so tired of telling God I'm sorry. Well, that's another message on how to overcome sin. But let's be honest, Jesus talking to his disciples uses hyperbole when they said, should we forgive our brother seven times? He goes, how about 490 times? Does that mean at 491 we're off the hook? No. What that's showing is that forgiveness has no limits to it when there's true repentance. If God asks that of us, how much greater is he than us? Guys, we need to, by faith, receive God's grace and just move on. And there's two words that are really, really similar. One is called conviction, and one is called condemnation, and they feel really close. Let me tell you the difference. Conviction is God is tugging on my heart to tell my wife I'm sorry or to tell my brother I'm sorry. Or God is tugging on my heart to say, God, I shouldn't have done that. And when I get it right, we're good. Condemnation is so similar. You know what it is, though? Condemnation is feeling guilty over something I already told God I was sorry for. And that's from the enemy. The Bible said God is not an accuser and a condemner, but the enemy is. Sometimes it's from our own heart, and if it's from your own heart and you're good at pointing a finger at yourself, the Bible says in 1 John, God is greater than your heart. He overrules your heart if your heart is pointing the finger back at you. If you've made it right with God, move on. And I think that part of what we need to do is learn how to recondition ourselves to think about it because if you're like me, what drove me to go get wasted that time? was all the feelings of guilt over sins I'd already confessed, right? I was feeling horrible about that. But I would say this, the way I approach sin today is very differently than I did when I was three months old in the Lord. When memories come to my mind of things, and especially my greatest failures, and I've had some pretty big failures, I really have, especially when I've been angry at times. You know, the Bible says, be angry and don't sin. And my wife will tell you, like, she knows me pretty well, probably better than any human being on the face of the earth, and she'll say it takes a lot to make Graham mad and get him angry. But sometimes when you've gone that far and you've got me that angry, like, I came that close to murdering a couple of my kids a few times, you know, just like <sighs> my mother-in-law, God rest her soul, she's in heaven now. My mother-in-law was sitting there one time, and my son, Ryan, who's actually preaching as we speak right now in Warren, the student pastor there, um, Ryan just had this talk back thing going on. Moms, dads, can you relate to that talk back thing? Like that kid that has to have the last word? That was me too. I did it to my dad. I got so much more whippings because of that. I couldn't shut up. And he kept yapping. And I was like, we had a ranch house, and I was like maybe at that wall, and he was way over there, and he's just yapping away. And all of a sudden, I said, hey, you need to stop it. And I'm like in a reclining chair. Like, I don't want to get up if I don't have to. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> And all of a sudden, like, 
my mother-in-law starts to see my face color change. And she yells at my son. She goes, Ryan, you idiot. Do you have a death wish? <laughs> he, just, he just kept yapping. And I don't know what happened, but like something came over me. Like Elijah outran the chariots. Like I just like bolted. And he ran and locked himself in the bathroom. And I just unlocked it and popped right in there. And he was just panicked, man. I'm not going to tell you what I did to him. But anyways. But, you know, we, we need to, when we fail, we need to recondition ourselves. How about this? When you think about your failures, what if you, instead of feeling guilty, what if you said something so simple, Father, thank you that when I prayed, you heard me. Thank you that when I prayed, you forgave me. Thank you that when I prayed, you washed away my past, that I'm free to walk with you today. Thank you so much. So the memory of that sin doesn't produce guilt, it produces praise, and that's a difference. Many of you probably grew up in, in, in school and heard about Ivan Pavlov, right? Very famous guy, and he did an experiment for which he won the Nobel Prize. And in this experiment, he was studying digestion in dogs, and he was looking at the relationship of uh, saliva to help them uh, not only eat it but digest it. And he noticed that as his lab workers were walking through the kennel, that when these dogs would begin to see their lab coats, they began to associate those coats with their food, and they'd begin to salivate. And he thought, huh, I wonder if I could create a condition where they did this. And so what he started to do was he would ring a bell, and then the workers would bring out the food. And he found over time that he could ring a bell when no food was present, and these dogs would simply begin to salivate. It's called conditioned reflex. And if you're a fan of The Office, we've watched Jim do it to Dwight Schrute with Tic Tacs. Anybody seen that one? So I think God is in the business of reconditioning our spiritual reflexes. And I often use this story because it's such a poignant one. I think Peter... Um, I relate to him in some ways. I relate to the, as my mother-in-law used to call it, foot and mouth disease, you know, just no filter, just say it out. I've grown a little bit since, since that time, but um, he was this bold guy. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, you know, it says that all the disciples left him, right? But, you know, before that happened, Peter stood in the presence of Jesus, and he said, you're all going to leave me, and Peter said, you're wrong. He said, I'm your dog. They can leave, but I'm here to the bitter end. I will die with you. And Jesus looked him right back in the eye and he said, Peter, as a matter of fact, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will have denied me three times. Sure enough, what does he do? The third time, not only does he deny him, but to make it more emphatic, he cusses the people out while he's denying him, Right? A real holy apostle, right, cusses him out and then sees Jesus. And it says he left that place weeping and in bitter anguish. How many of you think Peter might have felt just a little bit of shame and a little bit of guilt over denying this man that he walked with for three years, a man that he knew by the revelation of his heavenly father? No, Peter, no one has revealed this to you but your father in heaven that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He knew that by revelation. 
He walked on water. He watched Jesus feed multitudes. He went fishing and caught tax money. He knew this was God, and he denied him. And after Jesus was raised, it says he spent 40 days before he ascended to heaven, those 40 days after the resurrection where he interacted with as many as 500 different people. And one of the things he would do sometimes is have meals with them. And that morning, they were all out fishing, and they see him on the shore. He's already cooking some fish. They swim in. They have a meal with him, and he takes Peter aside. And I want you to think with me, how many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three And what does Peter ask him three times? Or what does he ask Peter three times? He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Do this. Do you love me? He asks him how many times? Three times. I believe what he was doing was reconditioning Peter's reflexes so that when Peter ever thought back on that moment of denial, that he would no longer feel guilt and shame and remorse and be stuck there instead of being the great apostle Peter to establish the church of the living God, that he wouldn't be stuck there, but that he would remember the grace of Jesus Christ because in the ancient world, they didn't have iPhones to wake them up. They didn't have any of those alarm clocks. The ancient alarm clock was a rooster. So Peter, in any city he ever awakes in, every single morning, one of the very first sounds he's ever going to hear, no matter where he's at for the rest of his life on earth, he's going to hear a rooster crow, and he's going to have to make a choice in that moment when he hears the rooster crow, and that is this, am I going to live in the past? Am I going to live in the guilt and the shame of yesterday? Or am I going to just begin to thank God for his amazing grace, his amazing forgiveness, the fact that my debt has been canceled? Am I going to begin to believe that and act like that's true and move on and possess what God has for me today? I think that's his choice that he gets to make every day. And you know what? We get to make that choice too. We get to make that choice too. Let me just give you one more scripture and then we're going to close it out here today. This is one of my favorite passages. Romans 8.1. So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the anointed one. If I read my Bible correctly in 1 John chapter 2, We've read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, and verse 9. Verse 10 goes on. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1 talks about the fact that Jesus is our legal attorney in heaven, that he stands as an advocate and as an attorney for you and I before the throne of the Father. And what he does is he says, Father, by the virtue of my sacrifice, the cross and my blood, Graham and John and Lori have put their faith in me, and by the virtue of the faith that they put in me, my blood has washed and cleansed them, removed their debt. They are no longer guilty. They are free to come into your presence, Father, because they are now holy and blameless in your sight, not because they're good enough, but because I'm good enough. I was able to pay the ultimate price. Can we just pray for a moment? The intention of this message isn't to make us feel guilty over sin, but it's to simply say, it's time to move on. So I would say this right while we're praying right now. Is there something that has been tugging at your heart? You just feel like, I just need to make that right. I need to make that right. Why don't you just do that right now? Something. God's listening to you. 
Just say, Lord, this is what's going on. I've blown it. I'm acknowledging it. I'm admitting it. I'm confessing it to you. Now, here's what I want you to do. While you're in that place of prayer, just from your heart to God, why not just begin to thank him right now that you are forgiven. Lord, I'm ready to move on past my past. And I just want to say that as his representative here this morning, you are forgiven. I'm telling you right now, you're forgiven. You're free. Galatians 5, 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. He set you free so you could experience and live in the freedom that he gives. So you're free. And why don't we just from our hearts now begin to thank him. Lord, thank you. I receive that. I thank you that I am forgiven. And just one last thing while we're still in this attitude of prayer. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity right now. Whenever you made that decision as a child a long time ago, I don't know, and you've been away for so long, and you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm here today. I'm ready to make that decision. This isn't about you joining this church or a religion. It's none of those things. This is about what are you going to do with Jesus? The Bible makes it very clear that not only did he die to cancel our sins, but he also died so that we could be raised to life, that he could give us a new heart, a new life, that we could live in the freedom of his kingdom right here, right now, that God's here and he's present to not just help you get to heaven, but he's here to help you right here, right now, walk through this life as well. So if you're here today and you're saying, I want to, receive Jesus. I want to make him Lord. The Bible says whoever receives him, those are the people that God gives the right to become his children by just receiving him. You could know about him like I did growing up, believe in him like I did growing up, but I never received him until I was 19. If you're here today and you want to receive him, a very simple way we can do that is just by prayer, just simply calling out to God. And if we pray it from our heart, I believe that he hears us and he honors that prayer. And so if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, Graham, I'm, I'm ready, man. I, I feel ready today. I want to make that decision. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. Then I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And at Believer's Church, nobody prays alone. So would you pray this with me? Just say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for my sins. I put all my trust in what he did for me on the cross. I'm not trusting my behavior. I'm not trusting my promises. I'm not trusting my good intentions. I'm not trusting my church attendance. I'm placing all my faith in what Jesus did when he died on the cross for my sin. Receive me into your family. Receive me into your kingdom. I believe in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hope you enjoyed today's podcast. There are a couple things I'd love for you to do. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. That helps us spread the word and impact more people. You can also help us see others connected to God by investing today at believers.cc slash give. And if you want updates on all things Believers Church, check out believers.cc or follow us at A City Connected on Twitter and Instagram or search Believers The Connecting Place on Facebook. The best way to connect with BC is live and in person at one of our weekend worship experiences. We have locations in Boardman and Warren, and you can get the service times and plan your visit at believers.cc. Thanks for tuning in to the BC Podcast. Thank you.